Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 156 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking with former U.S. military psychic spy, Paul Smith. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1983, a young Army officer named Paul H. Smith received a surprising offer. He was asked if he would be willing to become a psychic spy for the U.S. military. Soon, he was being trained in the discipline of remote viewing by famed psychic Ingo Swan. And then he put the new psychic skill to work, doing secret intelligence jobs as part of the project eventually known as Stargate. So who is Paul H. Smith? What is remote viewing? And what happened with Project Stargate? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how will we go about covering today's mystery? Paul Smith was very generous with his time and gave us enough material for two episodes of Mysterious World. So today we'll hear part one of the interview, which takes us inside the Stargate Psychic Spying Program. We'll talk about what motivated the program, how Paul became a part of it, how remote viewing works, and what happened in the program up to the point it was officially canceled in 1984. Next time, we'll hear about how it was brought back from cancellation. We'll hear more about what happened in the program, and we'll ask some questions analyzing remote viewing from the faith and reason perspectives. Awesome. So let's set the stage by giving the listeners some background. What is remote viewing? Remote viewing is the reported ability to pick up sensory impressions of a distant target by psychic means. A specific methodology for using remote viewing was developed in the 1970s and 1980s by psychic Ingo Swan and scientist Hal Putoff. This method is known as CRV, which can stand either for coordinate remote viewing or controlled remote viewing. It uses a series of stages to try to control the flow of information and boost its accuracy rate. And CRV was one of the main methodologies used in the government psychic spying program between the 1970s and the 1990s. The project went through several names, but its final name was Stargate. And before people ask, it has nothing to do with using wormholes to visit alien planets. Too bad. It, it has <laughs> to do with using psychic abilities to develop actionable intelligence for U.S. military, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies. 
So who was overseeing the Stargate project? It changed over time. At some points, it was being overseen by the CIA or Central Intelligence Agency. But at other points, it was being run out of the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, which oversees the different branches of the U.S. military. Physically, it was based at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is a U.S. Army installation. And for a while, the Army itself was running the program. Later, it was run by the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, not the same thing as the CIA. And it, uh, it, it would, and the DIA itself is run directly by the Department of Defense instead of any one of the branches of the U.S. military. Okay. So what can you tell us about Paul Smith himself? I'll read a biography of him at the beginning of the interview, and he'll, of course, share more details as well. He's got a very interesting story. Uh, for example, when he was living with his family in a residential neighborhood in Fort Meade, he had no idea his next door neighbors were part of this secret psychic spying program. He also didn't know they were secretly checking him out to find out if he might make a good member of it. So he was quite surprised when they asked him to join. He then became not only a longtime member of the program, but also its main historian. So he's a doubly good guest to have as he was there when it happened. And he's intimately familiar with its history and has written a book, which is the definitive history of Stargate. And I think listeners will really appreciate his first person perspective of what it was like to be there. So in the interview, he uses a couple of terms that I thought it might be helpful to clarify for people. One thing he uses is strap hanger. What does that mean? Literally, a strap hanger is a passenger on a bus or a train who stands rather than sits down during the trip. And they commonly hang on to one of the straps, you know, that they have for people to stabilize themselves as they ride. But metaphorically, the term can be used for a person who is added on to a project, even though he's not a regular member of it. In the interview, he refers to a man who was added into his training group even though he was from a different part of the army and wasn't a regular member of the psychic spying program, at least at first. Okay. You also discuss the Becca of Valley, a term that will be familiar to more mature listeners, but not necessarily younger ones. What is the Becca of Valley? It's located in Lebanon, and it became famous in the 1980s as part of the Lebanese hostage crisis. Between 1982 and 1992, terrorist groups in Lebanon kidnapped more than 100 foreigners, and they held them hostage for years. This was all over the news, as people who were adults at the time will remember. Many of the hostages were hidden at different locations in the Bekaa Valley, and trying to find them was one of the missions the remote viewers were given in the program. And you also briefly discuss a couple of organizations like the Esalen Institute and the Monroe Institute. What are they? They're both nonprofit organizations that do work in the human potential movement. Esalen is in California and the Monroe Institute is in Virginia. The latter was founded by a man named Robert Monroe, who was the guy who popularized the term out-of-body experience or OBE. An out-of-body experience occurs when a person's viewpoint seems to shift away from their body and they start seeing and experiencing things in other locations. For example, people who are having near-death experiences often feel like they're floating above their bodies. They can see them from above and then they can also move on to other locations. But you don't have to die to have an OBE. There are techniques that will reportedly let you have them even though 
you're not in danger of death. And the Monroe Institute is famous for trying to find ways to do this, especially by listening to certain kinds of audio tracks while meditating. We'll be discussing out-of-body experiences in a future episode. OBEs, though, are not the same thing as remote viewing, but they can be related. I know we can't go into detail the way we have in other episodes, but can you give us a quick overview of what the faith and reason perspectives would say about reported psychic abilities like remote viewing? Psychic abilities are supposed to be weak, but natural human abilities. They're weak because they don't work all the time, but they're natural in that they're supposed to be built into human nature. They're either powers that our souls have, that our bodies have, or that work by a combination of our souls and bodies. They do not or at least don't have to, involve non-human spirits like angels or demons or necessarily departed human spirits. At least this is the claim. You know, they're weak, natural abilities that we humans have. From the faith perspective, all human abilities are things that God built into us. God gave us all the abilities we have. And so if psychic abilities exist, they would be things that God built into human nature. And Christian thought has not been closed to the idea that such abilities exist. As we've discussed in previous episodes, doctors of the church like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas held that humans do have weak natural abilities that today we would call psychic. For example, both Augustine and Aquinas held that humans have a weak natural ability to learn about the future. Today, we would call that precognition, but Aquinas called it natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy that God gives. Aquinas also held that human souls have a weak natural ability to affect people at a distance, uh, which today we would call telekinesis or psychokinesis. Does the fact that Augustine and Aquinas believed in these abilities mean that the church teaches that psychic powers are real? No, these were matters of theological opinion rather than church teaching. What it does show, though, is the idea psychic, of psychic powers is not foreign to Christian thought and that it's not automatically contrary to church teaching. Whether psychic powers actually exist is thus something that needs to be examined from the reason perspective, such as the experiments that parapsychologists run. What does the evidence say from the reason perspective? It'll depend on what reported psychic ability you're investigating. But in this case, uh, remote viewing, there has been research done. The claim, of course, is not that remote viewing is always right, you know, because it's it's a weak ability, kind of like our sense of smell is weak, but natural, you know, compared, say, to a dog's. And so our sense of smell has hits and misses. And in the same way, uh, remote viewing is supposed to have hits and misses. The question is whether it, the hits go beyond what you would expect by random chance. And that means that you need to do a study of the phenomenon statistically and see whether you have better than random chance accuracy. Now, I'm not a statistician, so I leave that question to the statisticians to evaluate, but there have been studies done in this area. A particularly noteworthy one was done at the end of the Stargate program when the CIA commissioned a review of part of the program's results. There have been criticisms of this program and whether it was unduly stacked against remote viewing, but even if it was, the results were surprisingly positive. The two lead experts in charge of the review were Dr. Jessica Utz and Dr. Raymond Hyman. Here's how the paper itself, the report itself, describes them. 
To evaluate the research program, a blue ribbon panel was assembled. The panel included two noted experts in the area of parapsychology. Dr. Jessica Utz, a professor of statistics at the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Raymond Hyman, a professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. In addition to their extensive credentials, they were selected to represent both sides of the paranormal controversy. Dr. Utz has published articles that view paranormal interpretations positively, while Dr. Hyman was selected to represent a more skeptical position. Both, however, are viewed as fair and open-minded scientists. After completing their review of the files that they were able to look at in the allotted time period, Jessica Utz concluded, Using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Arguments that these results could be due to methodological flaws in the experiments are soundly refuted. Effects of similar magnitude to those found in government-sponsored research have been replicated at a number of laboratories across the world. Such consistency cannot be readily explained by claims of flaws or fraud. By contrast, Ray Hyman concluded, Obviously, I do not believe that the contemporary findings of parapsychology, including those from the program, justify concluding that anomalous mental phenomena have been proven. Professor Utz and some parapsychologists believe otherwise. I admit that the latest findings should make them optimistic. The case for psychic functioning seems better than it ever has been. The contemporary findings, along with the output of the program, do seem to indicate that something beyond odd statistical hiccups is taking place. I also have to admit that I do not have a ready explanation for these observed effects. Inexplicable statistical departures from chance, however, are a far cry from compelling evidence for anomalous cognition. This is a significant admission, and later Hyman goes on to say, Despite better controls and careful use of statistical inference, the investigators seem to be getting significant results that do not appear to derive from the more obvious flaws of previous research. I have argued that this does not justify concluding that anomalous cognition has been demonstrated. However, it does suggest that it might be worthwhile to allocate some resources towards seeing whether these findings can be independently replicated. If so, then it will be time to reassess if it is worth pursuing the task of determining if these effects do indeed reflect the operation of anomalous cognition. So let's review these two experts and what they said. Dr. Jessica Utz has a Ph.D. in statistics. Uh, she also has served as the president of the American Statistical Association, so she's well qualified to make an assessment of the statistics involved and whether remote viewing results are significantly above chance. Her conclusion was that using standards applied to any other area of science it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Dr. Raymond Hyman has a doctorate in psychology. He's also one of the founders of the modern skeptical movement. He was a founder of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation for Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP. Uh, it's one of the premier organizations devoted to debunking claims of the paranormal. Despite that, Hyman concluded that 
The case for psychic functioning seems better than it ever has. The contemporary findings do seem to indicate that something beyond odd statistical hiccups is taking place. I also have to admit that I do not have a ready explanation for these observed effects. He went on to conclude that although he was not personally convinced, it could be worth doing further research, and if the research continued to hold up, it could warrant reassessing whether psychic functioning is real. So on the question of whether the results of the RV experiments were above chance, both experts said yes. And on the question of whether this was the result of psychic functioning, one said yes, and the other said he wasn't convinced, but could change his mind based on future research. So how will all this inform our discussion with Paul Smith? To keep the conversation focused on Stargate itself, we won't be debating whether remote viewing produces better than chance results or whether psychic powers really exist. That's something you can either accept, like Jessica Utz, or challenge, like Ray Hyman. Our task here isn't to settle the question, so you can think whatever you want. Instead, our task in these two episodes is to go inside Stargate, learn what motivated it and how it happened, and ask what it would mean from the faith and reason perspectives if remote viewing really works as claimed. If listeners want to go into more depth on the topics we cover in this episode, where can they learn more? We'll have a list of further resources at the end of the episode, including Paul Smith's books and other written resources. In addition, I'd also strongly suggest that listeners check out previous episodes of Mysterious World, where we discuss these topics. The episodes include... Episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science, where we cover the basic distinctions between these categories and how they relate to each other. Episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing are ones where we cover how Ingo Swan developed the CRV remote viewing methodology and how the Stargate program began. And in episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the Occult, we discuss uh, what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say about psychic powers and other paranormal subjects. Anything else we should say before we hear part one of our discussion with Paul Smith? Yes, this episode and next, uh, listeners of Mysterious World have an unusual opportunity. Most people consume the program by audio only, which is normally basically what we can offer since StarQuest budget doesn't yet allow us for to have regular video editing. But I conducted the interview with Paul Smith by video, and Dom and I recorded the opening and closing segments by video. So if you want to see these episodes in video with moving images of Paul, me, and Dom, you can watch them online at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's youtube.com slash Jimmy, J-I-M-M-Y, Aiken, A-K-I-N as in Nancy. We'll also have a link to my YouTube channel in the further resources in the show notes. So before we hear the interview, let's say a word of thanks to our patrons. Uh, we're going to thank this week. We'd like to thank John K., Chris, Joseph F., Ronald S. and Austin T., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com 
and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So without further ado, let's go into my interview with Paul Smith. Dr. Paul H. Smith is a retired Army intelligence officer and Desert Storm veteran. During his military career, he earned the rank of major. He spent seven years in the Department of Defense's remote viewing program, which ultimately became known as Stargate. He thus served as one of the military's original psychic spies. He was trained in remote viewing by Ingo Swan, the famous psychic, and he then served as an operational remote viewer theory instructor and trainer, security officer, and unit historian. He has a BA in Middle Eastern Studies from Brigham Young University and an MS in Strategic Intelligence with Mideast Emphasis from the Defense Intelligence University. After leaving the military, he earned a PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the president of Remote Viewing Instructional Services and is a founding director and past president of the nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association. He's the author of several books, including The Definitive History of the Stargate Project, a book called Reading the Enemy's Mind, which I strongly recommend to readers and will have a link to if you're interested in learning about the history of the Stargate Project. This is the book you want to read. Further, uh, of all the remote viewers who have been active in the public eye over the last quarter centuries, he is the most careful, cautious, and balanced that I've read, and I really appreciate that. He's also our very first interview guest here on Mysterious World. So, uh, Dr. Paul H. Smith, welcome. Thank you. It's always fun to be here with somebody new, so to speak, right? <laughs> and, uh, and you think from listing off all my duties in the uh, military unit that you think I couldn't keep a job. But, well, uh, you're quite an you're quite an accomplished guy. With the uh, do you prefer in conversation major or doctor or what do you prefer? I prefer Paul. Paul, it is then. Yeah. Okay. But I just wanted to say I did all those jobs at the same time, so it wasn't that I was getting fired from one another for another. So. Yeah, <laughs> multitasking. There we go. Yeah. Um. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I grew up. I was born in Oregon, but I grew up in Southern Nevada. Uh, although I spent all my summers up in Wyoming and other parts of the Rocky Mountains doing farm and ranch work, um, which was a, it's too bad that every kid in the, in the United States couldn't do that. We, our country would probably look a lot different right now in terms of uh, you know, competence and ability to get along with that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so something will probably come out in the interview. I'm, I'm a member of the uh, what's called the Mormon Church, the Church mm-hmm. of Christ of Latter-day Saints. I did a uh, mission in Switzerland, which was about as close to going to heaven as you can get. Um, the interesting thing about Mormon missions is you don't get to pick where you wanted to go. Um, and uh, there, there's a place on the forum when you apply, where would you like to go? And I knew if I put anything down there, that's the one place I wouldn't be sent. <laughs> so, But if I had put something in a blanket, it would have been Switzerland. So there were like 140 different possible missions that one could go to. And when I opened up my mission call and it said Switzerland, I about fainted. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I, I'm unusual for that, that uh, experience in life. Unusually, I got to go actually where I wanted to go. And it was great. Was it uh, in uh, Switzerland that you picked up German? Yes. Um, well, they, they, have, uh, they had what they call the language training mission. You spent two months before you went out intensive German study or whatever language you're going to speak. And then you get to Switzerland and uh, 
I got off the plane and heard people speaking uh, Swiss German. I could have sworn they were all speaking Chinese <laughs> for no resemblance to what I had been studying. I, I later learned how to connect, but uh, but that's what you learn in Switzerland is learn how to understand the natives. Yeah. And that's often the way it is, the difference between the street language and the formal language. Absolutely. You also then, is, uh, I understand, uh, studied Arabic and Hebrew. Yes, I studied Hebrew in college when I went to uh, BYU. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very strong interest in the Middle East starting from when I was 14. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds weird. I mean, what what kid growing up in Nevada and, and spending a lot of time in Wyoming or whatever has an interest in the Middle East, but... I had read the book Exodus and had been totally fascinated by that whole thing. Um, I learned out later, learned later there's another side to the story. Um, I learned that by reading T.E. Lawrence's uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But I became fascinated. And at BYU, they taught Hebrew. They didn't teach Arabic. And I wanted to learn both. So I studied Mm -hmm. there and then uh, became an army. Well, actually enlisted in the army after my mission specifically to learn Arabic. So I became an Arabic uh, linguist for the Army, uh, eventually going on to officer candidate school and becoming an officer. And uh, and uh, it's great. I mean, I still am fascinated by the Middle East and, and am really dismayed at how ugly things are there in many parts of it, you know, because it's a, a fascinating place. Yeah. And uh, it's just the politics are, and it's not the religion, it's the politics that are screwing everything up. Yeah, I have an interest in the Middle East as well. And Barif Shwet Arabi, Shwet. Kalilin. Yeah. Ve Mevin Ivrit, local Kaktov. Okay. But uh, so uh, Arabic. So I like things Arabic. Kalilin um, mm-hmm. means a little in modern standard Arabic. You were using dialect when you said Shwet. Yeah. Um, what is it in Hebrew when you say a little bit? Katsat, katsat mode. Katsat, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's a fascinating uh, set of studies, and I know it played a role in your military work. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about how the program that eventually became Stargate began. Why was, it, why was the military interested in psychic phenomena? Because the Russians were. Mm-hmm. So much happened in the Cold War because we found out the Russians were interested. So now, as Russians is kind of a synonym for for Soviets, right? right. So I'll use them interchangeably. But obviously, there's more to it. But but for practical purposes, it's, uh, they're isomorphic. But um, the the Soviet slash Russians were quite interested in this stuff. Have been researching and spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Not rubles, which are worth about ten rubles to the dollar, but hundreds of millions of dollars in researching this. So, um, so they, they, the, the Soviets were really cranking on this. They were really digging into it. And of course the CIA realized the, 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 the Soviets, the Russians never did through that kind of money at anything, unless they hoped to actually have some kind of benefit from it. The CIA didn't believe in this stuff and what we would call paranormal or, or extrasensory perception or whatever. They didn't believe in it. But they started to think the Russians did, and there must be a reason. We better find out why was the thought process. And so they were looking for somebody to research this, to to find out what it was that the Russians were finding. Um, and it, on a parallel kind of a course, there's this uh, this guy named Ingo Swan, uh, who had spent three years in the Army. That didn't have anything to do with it, except he did have military, some military background. 
he was working with some researchers in New York City to uh, explore extrasensory perception and out-of-body experiences, that kind of thing, from a scientific perspective. And he developed a protocol he called remote viewing. And a, a, a scientist at Stanford Research Institute, which later became known as SRI, and that's how I'll refer to it, uh, Stanford Research Institute, um, they, they got together. It's complicated. I won't tell you that whole part of the story. But they got together, did an experiment that was really pretty persuasive that involved not just, uh, you know, essentially extrasensory perception, remote viewing, but also telekinesis, as people call it, but really psychokinesis is the current term for it. And uh, and the guy's name was Hal Putoff. The scientist's name was Hal Putoff. And he, he wrote up a, a, a paper on what they'd done, and it circulated around and ended up on what they were calling the weird desk at the CIA. Weird desk because they looked into all the other things that weren't conventional, the strange stuff, right? And not just paranormal, but just off the registers kind of research and stuff. And the CIA said, we have an answer to our problem. We're going to hire these guys to research what the Russians are doing. Um, and not just research it, but try and replicate it to see if there's actually a risk or a threat there. And that's where the program started. Uh, the CIA ran it. When I say ran, they funded it for about three years. And then they got in trouble for other reasons and were forced to close out of any of the controversial stuff they're involved in. So the Air Force picked it up, uh, the funding up for a while. And then uh, in the late 70s, the Army started its own program. And that was kind of working in conjunction with a administrative effort at the Defense Intelligence Agency to explore this new phenomenon that they uh, essentially developed and discovered that we call remote viewing. And the program originally was not called Stargate. Uh, it was uh, Gondola Wish, correct? Well, it's, of course, here's, here's the thing, military code names, if you will, code names or nicknames, is that uh, you're only allowed to have it in effect for five years, and then you have to change it. It's a security thing, right? Um, figure after about five years, then the opposition in this case, the Soviets just start to figure out what was going on with it. And so then you change the code name and they lose the, lose the track again, right? So that was the thing. They kept changing it. But actually, the very first name was while it was still at SRI. It was called Scanate, which was a conjunction of scanning by coordinate. The Army started out its program called Gondola Wish. And another thing about code names is what they do is they give you two, print, two computer printouts with with words on them, just randomly chosen words. And then you pick one a word from one list and a word from the other list and put them together. And then that gives you your code name, right? So Gondola Wish was just computer generated on two lists. And then they just picked those two words because they didn't have anything to do with each other. It's another security issue or way of dealing with security. And that was the first one. And that was just the setup phase. When they actually started doing remote viewing work in 1979, it was now called Grill Flame. And then when I came on in 1983, that had changed to Center Lane. Okay. And, uh, and, it can, and there were others. So Center Lane became temporarily Dragoon Absorb, and then Dragoon Absorb became Sunstreak, and then Sunstreak became Stargate. And that was the final name under which it was known. So. And you got to admit, Stargate is a really, really cool name. And that one was a little... Uh, it, it, it broke the, the standards a little bit because the, the guy who who uh, chose that name, his name was Dale Graff. 
And he was the guy actually who brought it into the Air Force in 1975 when the CIA abandoned it. Uh, he had later gone to work for CIA, for the DIA, and he was um, then put in charge of this program. Okay, so in 1990 they had to come up with a new name for it because the Sunstreak had been the name for five years, and he, and he got two lists. The first one had the word star on it. He kind of liked the sounds of that. The second one, he didn't like any of the words on the second list. So he thought, maybe I can come up with one. He's driving down the road one day, and he sees this gate on the side of the road. Gate, gate, stargate. I like that. I'm going to call it stargate. And remember, this is 1990. This was three years before the movie, and what, five years or so before the TV show. So it wasn't like he borrowed the name from Hollywood. It's almost like Hollywood borrowed the name from him. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, you joined the program in 1983. Um, tell us about that. How did that happen? I assume that they don't have Uncle Sam wants you for a psychic spy recruiting posters. No, you, they didn't go looking for volunteers. Well, they did technically, but you, but they didn't advertise, right? Um, they were, they had a, a new contract with SRI, which was still on the research side of it and the training side of it to train three more viewers, three new viewers for the Army, and a new methodology that had been developed called CRV, or Coordinate Remote Viewing, although today we call it Controlled Remote Viewing, and that's how I'll refer to the term, Controlled Remote Viewing. So they were looking, and I had no idea about this, um, and I just, this is like one of those, the will of God, the hands of fate, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I was sent for me to, to work as a, uh, uh, as a Middle Eastern analyst, and I was doing that job, but what I didn't know is I moved in next door to the operations and training officer for the remote viewing program and across the street from one of their current sources, one of the current remote viewers. And I was curious about them because they never wore government uh, uniforms, even though they were on a military facility. Uh, the guy across the street, Tom, had a, had a full beard, which, is, as you know, is very unusual in the military. Uh, either you're undercover or you're flaunting the regulations or you're not in the military. So any of those three possibilities, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and I want to know what they did, but they, they wouldn't tell me. And now every other discipline on, on Fort Meade, and they had all three, four really of the, of the intelligence disciplines. They had human intelligence, which is the, the human spies. They had signals intelligence with NSA, which is, you know, listening into the radio waves and everything else. They had, um, oh, signal, uh, let's see, um, what fits under there? Event. They had uh, optical, well, emit, yeah, emit, yes, emit. So, yes, the optical stuff, you know, the satellites and all that stuff represented there. And there's a few other ones. There's MAZ. I won't get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of the intelligence world, but um, they had. Better not, all, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they pretty much had all of them represented for me. And I said, well, do you guys do human? You can't tell me specifically what you're doing, but you can at least tell me what you're doing, imit, human, or sigint, or whatever. And they said, uh, no, we're not doing any of those. I went, what? What else is there? <laughs> you know, that's all there is. The things I named off are, is all, are all the intelligence discipline there is, and you're not doing those, and yet you're doing intelligence work. I don't get it. Well, eventually I found out they were looking for people who um, – Army officers who were competent in their careers, who'd done well in their careers, but then had additional interests like in uh, studio art or music or, well, language is fairly common, but that was one of the indicators in, in intelligence world languages. Um, 
creative writing, some kind of creative kind of right brain, if you will, uh, sort of um, activity, pastime, if you will, which is not typical in the, in the, in the military environment. Well, it so happened that I'd majored in art in college and done some illustration and stuff, illustration work. Um, I, of course, was fluent in German and competent at the time in Arabic and Hebrew. I had, I like to write short stories um, and get them rejected. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. So, so they got to know me and they said, well, we can't not try this guy out. He may not turn out to be any good, but with those kinds of interests, there's a high probability that he'll actually be decent as a remote viewer. So they gave me some, they said, we'll tell you what we're doing, but first we have to give you some tests and stuff and then read you on. And so I took some tests. They're basic, mostly basic kind of personality profile psychology tests. And then um, invited me over to the building where they did, where their, their admin building, which was this old World War II uh, former uh, mess hall, actually, that they renovated. And it was supposed to have been just, you know, d demolished in, in 1946. And we were still using it right in the 80s. Um, and Tom sits me down. You have a picture of him. He's in jeans, a open neck shirt with a beard, right? Sitting on the other side of the, the, the table. And he says, as we collect intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychology discipline known as remote viewing, we essentially want you to volunteer to be a psychic spy. And then he hastens to add, well, this is that, by the way, after I'd signed this really draconian NDA, right? And he added, now you don't have to tell me right now. You can, uh, you, you can go home and you can tell your spouse these things. Uh, they recognized they had to at least tell the spouse something for somebody to make a decision like this. They were very limited. but uh, And then you can come back tomorrow and tell us. I said, no, I, I, don't, I don't need to. I need, don't need those 24 hours. I said, where do I sign? <laughs> Besides, mm -hmm. you know, how do, I, how do I get involved? And he said, he was really kind of surprised because nobody had ever responded that quickly to this before. But what he didn't know is while he was talking, I'm thinking in the back of my mind. Okay, so I'd been interested in ESP as a kid. I read all the science fiction work that involved ESP, you know, like Andre Norton and Zena, uh, Zena Henderson is her name. I'm blanking right now, um, and, and all that stuff. And I'd uh, been very interested in it. But I even tried it in a science fair project in junior high, which was a total failure. Had I'd come to conclude that there probably wasn't anything to it. All that was fun to think about, right? And here he's telling me that there's a line item in the federal budget that pays for this that they are actually teaching people to do remote viewing, that, that they want me to be trained in that. And I'm going, there's no way I'm not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if my career is toast after this. I'm going to do this, you know. And, uh, and so that's where it started. Uh-huh. So after that, they then sent you for training to Ingo Swan, who had developed CRV. And you were part of a group of four students who were being trained simultaneously. And based on all the reading I've done, they sound like some really quirky characters, uh, pretty colorful people. Uh, who were they and uh, what were they like? So there were three of us from the actual what became Stargate, right? There was myself, there was Bill Ray, and there was Charlene. At the time, her name was Kavanaugh, now Charlene Shufeld. Um, there was then this fourth guy, Ed Dames. Now, Ed was not part of our unit. He, there was a sister unit that engaged in technical intelligence, and they were interested to see 
if they had their own remote viewer on board, um, if that could enhance their collection. So they wanted to get their own remote viewer. And Ed had known about the program for a while. He'd been tasking them for probably two, three years before providing tasks he wanted to fulfill, you know, in terms of collecting technical intelligence. <clears throat> so he um, <clears throat> he's very good at getting what he wants, and he managed to get his unit to support him and provide the necessary funding because you don't do anything in the military unless it's funded, right? <clears throat> the, the necessary funding to allow him to be kind of a strap hanger with us in this training. Now, Ed, of course, later became famous as the the, the major Dr. Doom, right? Uh, and, and that was strictly because he every other day he'd predict a new way that the world was going to end. And then, of course, it wouldn't end. And then he'd come up with a different projection that the world was going to end such and such. And then it didn't end again. And he became very famous about that. He's still kind of famous about it. And people love to listen to that because there's high drama and all of that. Um, so he gets on late night radio and makes a, the prediction of the month or whatever, you know, and <clears throat> the rest of us are fairly straightforward. Charlene was actually a personnel specialist who become involved in an earlier research project to track down all these human. Uh, what's, what's the word? What did we call it? There's a technical term for it. Well, anyway, newly emerging human technologies. Uh this is, of course, the kind of the middle, middle of the New Age movement. And there was a lot of things like you get into, you know, Esalon did some stuff. And there was out-of-body work done at uh, Monroe Institute and all that kind of thing. She was involved in researching that. And they decided that she might actually be have a, have a role to play. She was a military and Army civilian. She, she joined us. Um, the other guy is Bill Ray, who was a counterintelligence officer. And I'd first met him in Germany and didn't realize I'd met him until we started putting things together after he'd come to Fort Meade for this program. Um, very committed Irish. <laughs> That's one of the impressions I've got. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> he loves to sing off key Irish songs, mm -hmm. <laughs> but really a great warm hearted guy. Just wonderful and brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Excellent counterintelligence officer when, uh, when he retired from the army. So he was in the remote viewing program, even became his commander. Uh, in 1987, went on to do real-world counterintelligence again. Uh, when he retired, he did, I, I'll get the numbers wrong, but I think it was four tours in Afghanistan and one tour in Iraq as a government civilian specializing in counterintelligence, um, right in with the combat troops, you know, working to help, you know, protect them from, you know, from insurgent intelligence uh, collection activities, which, of course, could be fatal if you didn't stop him, you know, and and uh, even in his 70s, he was still going back to Afghanistan and doing all of that stuff. Wow. He's just an amazing guy, but he is also very interesting, amusing, fascinating. <laughs> He's a great guy. So we've so, got we've got the four of you. We've got Paul Smith, Ed Dames, Charlene Cavanaugh, and Bill Ray. Mm -hmm. And you're going up to Ingo, I gather, a lot of the time in New York City where he lived, mm -hmm. and you're getting your training Ingo is an interesting character himself. What was he like as a teacher and as a person? Well, <clears throat> I think the word complex personality was was coined for Ingo Swan, right? But he was uh, he was very nice, but when it came to teaching, he was very serious, very serious. He wanted to make sure we learned what we were what he he had been hired to do by the U.S. government, right? And so. Um, 
we would uh, we would have lectures, we would have practical exercises, we would do remote viewing sessions, all monitored by him. Um, and uh, this every two weeks, every other two weeks for two weeks, we would uh, quarterly we go out to Menlo Park to the SRI campus out there, which is huge in California. In California. Yes, thank you. Uh, and we'd work there. And of course, uh, Hal Putoff was involved in this as well, because it was partly his design as well. <clears throat> so we'd work with them. But uh, the other, every other two weeks um, during the quarter, we would go up to uh, the SRI facilities in Midtown Manhattan uh, and where Ingo would train us. And then we would often socialize in the evenings. Sometimes he'd declare a training holiday. We'd do work in the morning, and then we'd go see a, a movie in the afternoon that had something to do with ESP or the paranormal. Um, we saw the first run of the Terminator. We saw Firestarter. We saw Ghostbusters. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> so that was a lot of fun. I mean, yes, we were doing our government time, but actually it did sort of kind of a, um, kind of a training function in a way, because uh, it did help us to loosen up our strict military mindsets in terms of, of what could happen and what can't happen, you know? And, and, and so I think it did serve a function, even though it was entertainment, right? Now he was training you in this kind of multi-stage process yeah. um, called uh, coordinate remote viewing at the time or later uh controlled remote viewing, how did those stages work? And what did you experience as you were trying to view a target? Did you like see it in your mind's eye or what happened? Um, yeah, this is try, like trying to tell somebody what it feels like to be in love in a way, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but it, it, there are six stages now because of what happened politically with the program, uh, I and our little group uh, only got up through stage three, which is really the first complete uh, transferable skill set. Um, we were trained in the other stages later. I'll get into, into that as, as necessary. Um, the first stage is just a really kind of a snapshot of what it is you're experiencing. Uh, we call that stage one. And, um, First of all, you get what's called a kinesthetic impression. Kinesthetic is where your muscles know what they're doing, but your mind does not, right? So if you have a pen and a piece of paper, um, they start off with a coordinate. We were using uh, geographic coordinates back then. Um, you, the, the monitor would read, in this case, SWAN, would read as a coordinate. And then we would allow our pen to make the marks that, that were, that, impinged upon us, you know, in, in terms of the kinesthetics. Um, so it's kind of like a reflex as you're, as you're acquiring kind of the reflex. target. Yes, thank you. It's kind of a reflex kind of a experience. Uh, but there is content to it. You just don't know what it is because your conscious mind is not involved in that. Right. Then the next step is to try and break that down. What was it I experienced and what does it mean about the target? And you end up determining whether it's land, structure, water, uh, life form is as commonly a term that's often used, event um, or activity. Those are the main kinds of things you can, you can break this down in, in this first stage, right? And almost exclusively, well, in fact, it was exclusively during the training, it was either land, water, or structure, but there's a myriad of possibilities within those three categories, right? So um, that first stage is that's just like 
a few seconds once you get this down. Uh, it can be done in, I don't know, five seconds maybe, and identify whether what you're perceiving as a structure is land or is water. Okay. Then you move on to the next stage, stage two, which is sensory experience. If you get bits and pieces of, of what it's like to actually be there from a sensory perspective, what you smell, what do you hear, what can you feel in touching it? Uh, did I leave out what you can uh, hear? Maybe taste. I said that already. <laughs> Say again. Taste. Taste. Taste, yes. What you, what can you taste? And, of course, what you can see. Now, when I say what you can see, it isn't like, oh, I see a car, because that's almost always created by the left brain. It's almost always wrong. Not always, but almost always wrong. Um, what you do get is, let's say there's a red car at the target. You describe red, shiny, um, transparent, round, rubbery smell, rumbling sounds, gasoline smell. You know, you get those kind of descriptors, um, shiny, glossy. And later on, you say, oh, this reminds me of a car or something like that, right? But you don't just see a car in your mind's eye. You don't see. Well, if you do see a car in your mind's eye, it's almost always something your left brain's made up. You'll say, well, all of this stuff sounds like a car. And your left brain says, oh, here's a car. But it could be just some arbitrary car it remembers, right? <laughs> it won't be the actual car that you're seeing there. Now, occasionally, you do actually see the actual car. But that's pretty advanced usually when that happens. So the third stage is what we call dimensional appreciation, and that's where you get the feeling for height, width, volume, uh, depth, um, distance, that kind of thing. And then you can start sketching. So I use the Eiffel Tower as my example. In stage one, uh, you get the idea that this is a structure of some kind. That's all you get in stage one. You get into stage two, you start saying things like black, metallic, flaking, uh, food smells, chirping sounds, clanging, rumbling sounds, um, shiny, cold, you know, all these kinds of things. In stage three, you start sketching, and you may even manage to sketch a fairly good representation of the Eiffel Tower. But this, again, is back to the kinesthetic process, that often what you sketch is not something you're seeing in your head. It's just something that feels right. It feels like there should be a curving line here. It feels like there should be crisscrossing things here. It feels like it's tall. It feels like it's hollow, right? And that's the kind of stuff you get in stage three. Um, and then it goes on from there. Um, you want me to do four and five and six? That, that's okay. It's just yeah. basically progressively more yes. information and reflecting yeah. on it and trying to get actionable intelligence out of it. Exactly. You finally get to the point where you actually get uh, complex abstract terms like tourism or like foreign or like this is a monument or things like that. And you can even make a three-dimensional model when you get to stage six of it, kind of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfuss is building Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes on the dining room table. You know, that's a stage six kind of an experience in, in, uh, in controlled remote viewing. Now, after your training, they then put you to work in uh, Center Lane and asked you to start not just testing, like viewing the Eiffel Tower, but trying to find out about actual intelligent situations where the information would be of use. What kind of stuff were they having you observe at that point? So it's probably easier to address this for the whole breadth of the, of the program, right? Because we did different things at different times. Um, the first ever operational thing we worked was actually trying to find the location of a missing DEA agent who'd been kidnapped in El Paso. And, and smuggled across the Mexican border and ultimately killed. Um, 
we were called in actually at that night. The guy's name was Enrique Camarena. Uh, really good guy. Sad this happened to him. Um, but uh, so we were trying to describe it, and we weren't even technically operational yet. We haven't finished our training, but. In, in a in a crisis situation, we even had the secretary trying to do it. <laughs> wow. So, so we were doing this based on what we had learned, what we had that thus far acquired in, as, in terms of an ability, and we, um, you know, we produced stuff. But but they found him before our stuff actually got up the channel. They found the location. The upside of that was the very next day in the national news they had. They had images of the of the location. He was in a it was a ranch house in northern Mexico, uh, and I was able then to compare what I had gotten with the actual visual, you know how that place looked, and it matched very closely. So that was confidence building for me. It said, "Okay, I have learned something, and yes, it does work." Right, uh, even though we didn't get to use it, which unfortunately was often the story. We produce good data, but it wouldn't get up the food chain quickly enough for them to do anything with it, right? And other times it'd be discounted. The people find out where it came from and they say, oh, that can't be true. And then they wouldn't even look at it. And then after the fact, they'd say, oh, that actually was right. <laughs> you know, that happened particularly in a, in a case maybe we'll talk about later. But um, yeah, so we also did things like uh, trying to track, um, what were they called? Uh, anyway, uh, anti-ship missiles the Iranians had. Mm -hmm. um, trying to track hostages in the Middle East, Western hostages in the Bekaa Valley, um, Chinese nuclear tests, uh, Russian new, weapon, new Russian weapons technology, particle beam weapons, things like that. Um, we had a, one whole long face where we were dedicated almost exclusively to war on drugs, trying to track narco traffickers, drug shipments, drug transfer points, that kind of thing. Uh, that was actually really quite, quite successful, surprisingly. And um, you, you had a good bit of success with these different things in general, or you wouldn't have the clients keep coming back to you. That's true. And now, now obviously, I'll be the first to say remote viewing doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. um, there were times when we just totally fell flat on our faces, but there are other times when it absolutely indisputably was successful um, based strictly on, intel on, on remote viewing. Um, but then my counter to that is that there's no intelligence methodology that actually works 100% of the time. People have this huge faith on satellite in satellites. Only a small fraction of the total satellite take in the inventory has is of any value whatsoever. But because that small percentage is so useful, then obviously satellites are here to stay, right? And the uh, same thing applied to remote viewing. Oftentimes didn't work at all. Sometimes it worked, but we provided information they already had. But there were times when they provided information nobody had, and it turned out to be right. And that's that's the part that kept us going. Were there particular types of things that were easier to view than others? Were there higher successes with some types of things than, than other things? Well, um, for example, um, I know that one thing that is kind of the holy grail is viewing the future and right. being able to determine that. So uh, let, let, let's I'll save that for a minute here. But okay. so the actual operational things we worked, we did occasionally try future viewing and it mostly failed. I'll explain why uh, perhaps in a bit. Um, one thing we had a really hard time with was hostages. 
Um, and it turned out that we often, I don't know how often, it's hard to evaluate in these situations. We at least sometimes, that was verifiable, described where they were at a point, but not where they were later, right? <laughs> because the problem with hostages is they keep moving them. There's two problems, with, particularly in a place like the Vakaw Valley. There's two problems. The first one is you can remote view where the hostage is right now, but they may move them by the time you get there. Um, of course, we have that same problem, for example, in the raid in Santé in Vietnam, where they're trying to free the, those prisoners in, in North Vietnam. Their intelligence said they were there. And when they attacked the Santé pl- uh, prisoner camp, they would have succeeded in liberating the prisoners, except that like the week before they'd moved them out and the intelligence wasn't timely enough to tell the, the U.S. that that had happened, right? So the same thing happened in, in Bacaw Valley. Oftentimes, we'd give them the intelligence. It would turn out to be right. But by the time they, they were able to, to get into it, they weren't there anymore, right? The other problem is very often we were identifying them in places where there's no way you could get people in. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to know where a hostage is if it's a setting where you couldn't reasonably, with any chance of success, get a strike team in to rescue them. Um, And so that happens a lot in the intelligence world where they get really good intel, but there's nothing you can do about it. You can't Mm -hmm. actually operationalize it. So hostages were a tough one, a tough one. Um, Most of the time, other ones were probably about equally successful, I would say. In, in our success rate, if you can, you can't really calculate what a success rate is. But uh, generally speaking, we seem to have uh, the success to failure ratio for the things got evaluated seem to be roughly the same across the board for the other kinds of targets. Um, so, so the future is a little bit tougher. We tried a number of instances to try and predict the future and failed. And I think the reason is uh, you get people who believe that the timeline is a where we live in a block universe where present where past present future all exist on a continuum they're all present right now they all exist and all we are is a point of perception that moves along these things right um the remote viewing evidence suggests that's false um i think the model is and, and this is not original with me there are others who believe this as well obviously is that the future doesn't exist yet we do not live in a block universe that there are all kinds of ways the future could unfold, but it depends on what decisions are made as the present moves along, how the future unfolds. There are some things that obviously are are deterministic. Usually they have to do with physical properties, uh, physical phenomena like earthquakes or the evolution of stars or whatever, right? If you had enough facts, you could predict those. But of course, the eccentricity wheel here is human intentionality. And human intentionality and free will, which I believe in implicitly, uh, allows things to change that have to do with humans in the future. And so decisions humans make now, choices they make, actions they take, can affect whether something else happens in the future or not. And so when you try to remote view into the future, particularly the farther into the future you get, the more likely you are to be wrong. Because the future just doesn't happen to want to follow what you think it's going to go, right? <laughs> so uh, so anytime we tried to do future predictions, um, for the most part, it failed. Occasionally it worked because sometimes the future does turn out the way that you maybe are able to remote view it. 
or there's another modality called a social remote unit that plays a role as well. But let's not get into that at the moment. We can maybe yeah. discuss it later. So we've got uh, Cinder Lane going on with a, you know, mixed success. Some of it's successful, some of it's not. And then we hit a period where the supervisor sees a sign that says Center Lane closed ahead in uh, in on Friday, the 13th. In July of 1984, y'all got word that the program had been closed. Yes. Can you tell us that story? Jimmy, that's a great cliffhanger for today's episode with the Stargate program about to be canceled in 1984. Uh, Before we end things, what further resources can we uh, offer the listener and viewer? Well, we'll have a link to uh, Paul Smith's book, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. And this book is written for a wide audience, including people who don't know anything about remote viewing. In fact, it's designed for people who study or practice RV to give to skeptical friends and family to help them understand what this is all about. As you'd expect from Paul, he avoids the hype and sensationalism that often surrounds the paranormal and provides an introduction to the science and practice behind remote viewing. We'll also have a look, uh, a link to his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, which is the definitive history of the Stargate program, and I, I highly recommend that one. Also, we'll have a link to his blog, articles about uh, the Stargate program, uh, my YouTube channel, so you can watch this in video. Uh, also, an article I wrote on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, where we even have an algorithm of the principles that Aquinas uses to evaluate paranormal phenomena. Also, we'll have links to episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing, episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the Occult, and episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. Also, uh, we'll have a link to a video where a British a remote viewer named Daz Smith demonstrates the first three stages of controlled remote viewing. In this video, he's he's set it up for people who are interested in maybe learning remote viewing. But even if you're not interested in learning remote viewing, he's got a really nice demonstration of how those first three stages work. And I'll have it queued up for that. Also, uh, briefly, if you want to read more about the Beka Valley or the Lebanese hostage crisis, we'll have links for information about those as well. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we have a psychology theme in our uh, mysterious headlines this week. Now, one of the problems that remote viewers have to deal with is random thoughts that are not what they're there to to record, you know, to just pop up in your mind. But remote viewers aren't the only people that have to deal with those. A lot of us, in fact, All of us have stray random thoughts that can be annoying at times. Sometimes they cause people anxiety. And there's a suggestion. There have been different suggestions over time about how do you deal with those thoughts? Well, we'll have a link to an article from Psychology Today talking about how one could treat anxious thoughts like annoying Internet pop up ads and get rid of them and dismiss them without really worrying about them. So if if you have distracting thoughts, whether you're remote viewing or just living your daily life, check out the uh, article from Psychology Today on treating thoughts like Internet pop up ads. Also, you know, psychology doesn't just apply to our species. Uh, Every species has its own psychology. And one of the things you may have heard about dogs and foxes and wolves in particular is that their psychology results in there being an alpha pair 
in each wolf pack, a single dominant male and dominant female and a hierarchy of other adult males and females built around that alpha pair who sometimes gets challenged for their dominant position. Well, it turns out that happens if you take a bunch of wolves and cram them into a small space. But that's not how wolves function in the wild. In the wild, a wolf pack is really, a, it turns out, is a pair of parents and their offspring. And so you don't have these broader packs under ordinary circumstances. You don't have these broader packs with an alpha pair and so forth. So we'll also have a link to, and of course, they have a lot of wolves in Norway, so they've done a lot of the science there. We'll have a link to an article from Science Norway that talks about how wolf packs don't really have alphas. It's actually a lot more interesting than that. Interesting. I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, I wonder if I can get an internet pop-up ad blocker for my brain. That would be really great. I'm to... <laughs> sure Elon Musk would love to sell you one. <laughs> that's right. All right. So I think that's it from us. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts about our conversation with Paul Smith about remote viewing and the Stargate project. You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or by sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we'll hear about what led to the program's cancellation in 1984 and then how it was brought back from cancellation at the last minute. We'll also hear more about its history, including Paul's most famous remote viewing hit. And Paul and I will be analyzing remote viewing from the faith and reason perspectives. Excellent. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.